Welcome to the Nurse Becoming podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Guarneri from the Resume RX, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to empowering and encouraging nurses along your path of professional and self discovery. As a nurse practitioner, mom, and business owner, I'm on a mission to help you figure out how to leave your lasting impact on the world, all while bravely and fearlessly growing along the way. Join me for honest conversations and inspiring stories about personal and professional growth, all through the lens of nursing. Well, hey there. Welcome back to the Nurse Becoming Podcast. It's your host, Amanda Gornieri. So excited to be spending a little bit of time with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am really excited to feature an interview today with Andrea Delzell, who you may or may not know. She is known in the community as the seated nurse because she uses a wheelchair. When Andrea was five. She was diagnosed with transverse myelitis and had a pretty lengthy medical journey and was permanently in a chair by the time she was a young teenager. And I'll let her tell her whole story. But Andrea is also a registered nurse. And what we're going to talk about in the interview today is the challenge that she faced when trying to navigate the world of nursing or really trying to navigate being given the chance to prove what she knew she could already do, regardless of her disability. So Andrea went on 100 plus interviews. She is going to kind of give us her lessons learned from those experiences. And we dive into her mindset and her leadership and her advocacy work as well. So I'm very excited for you to tune in. So without further ado, here's my interview with Andrea. Hey, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We finally started talking. I know. I know. I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like we have talked kind of back and forth on Instagram for like a year through DMs and we're finally getting to connect face to face, which is such a treat. Yes, it has a year. I think so. Right. Because we started talking when you were still going on all of your initial chunk of interviews, right? Oh, definitely more than a year then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> here we are. <laughs> I know. And I'm really excited to dive into that story. But first, I've already introduced you a little bit, but I would love to hear in your words, tell us about yourself, about your story, about your nursing journey. And uh, yeah, just fill everyone in who doesn't know you already. So I am Andrea Dalzell. I am known as the seated nurse on Instagram. Uh, I happen to have transverse myelitis that left me uh, a T10 to L1 incomplete paraplegic, which means I use a wheelchair and it has wheels and that's all about it. That's it. It's wheels and people are scared of it. And I don't know why, especially in nursing, but I tell myself all the time that I'm the lucky one because I don't have to stand up during 12 hour shifts. Hold that. <laughs> and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I am currently a school nurse in New York City, and schools are open for us. So I've been working every day. And outside of that, I'm also in a master's degree program for nursing education. So that's a little bit about me. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. And I'm excited to kind of dive into little pieces of your story. Uh, But first, I really like these conversations to really be very much about you as opposed to about like specific interview topics. So I would love to get a little bit of background and know like, who was Andrea as a kid? Like, tell us about you growing up, like your personality, like tell us about you when you were little. Oh, when I was little. So I wasn't born with my disability. That came at like five years old. So me just until five, I was just rambunctious, spunky, always kind of knew what I wanted. Uh, if you think New York, think like fast paced and you think like kind of like an attitude. Everyone says that New Yorkers have the worst attitudes. Well, if New York was a little kid, it was me. <laughs> um, I I didn't have a bad attitude. It was more just along the lines of I knew what I wanted and even at three years old, I got what I wanted. Like I would negotiate with my parents about how I would get ice cream for breakfast and like how my mom's purse looked better with my jean jacket versus whatever she was wearing. Like, <laughs> And this was all me as a kid. And I loved to hang around like my cousins, like we all did, like my family was close growing up. So we were always together, all the big holidays, all of the the outings, me, we traveled down to uh, Maryland or Florida very often and just have that family time and always be that spunky cousin that was like getting everyone else into trouble (laughs) that always worked out in my favor because I negotiated what my punishment would be. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So did you have a particular moment or was this kind of an evolution when you realized that you wanted to be in a service type profession you know, as a grown up, what, what was that like? You know, I didn't always think that I was going to be in a service profession. I think as a kid, I might have said that I was going to be a doctor, but when I got transverse myelitis and I had to be around doctors and people all of my life, I hated it. Uh, at that point, I was just like, I don't want to be you guys. I want to be a lawyer and sue all of you. Cause then I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Um, and I would tell my doctors this, I'd be like, if I have to be in a hospital for any amount of time, I'm going to sue you. Like that was, that's New York way, right? I'm going to sue you for all the things you've ever done to me. So I don't know. I think it was more along the lines of, it was a transitional piece for me. Like just saying that, you know, my disability had such an impact on my life from a young age, because from five to 12, that's what I was really dealing with until I was permanently in a chair. I was dealing with doctors and visits and rehabs and hospital stays. And I had to grow up really quickly in that atmosphere. So it turned into, okay, I'm just going to roll my hospital floor and take my ID band off and go downstairs to the gift shop and try to buy something. Like they don't know that I'm a patient upstairs. Uh, and then I would like negotiate with the nurses about how many graham crackers I would get after dinner. Like they come around and say, Oh, do you want snacks? And I'd be like, yeah, I need 10 graham crackers. And can I get chocolate milk? And they'd be like, you can't have that. And I'm like, well, what am I going to get or what am I not going to do for you to give me this? (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of like led into me just being this adult that felt like, Oh, they've given me so much and they were able to communicate with me as a child that I get to do that as an adult now. And I could do it on my terms. (laughs) I can see how that could have gone either way, right? Like it could have pushed you so far away from hospitals and the medical field. But in your case, it sounds like it really pushed you closer. And correct me if I'm wrong, but your original path, you 
were in the social work field before you went into nursing. Is that correct? No. So I, mm -mm. Uh, before even nursing came about, I was working with people with disabilities. I was always part of like a foundation, always connected to a foundation that was giving back to people with disabilities. And then while I was in college, I became Miss Wheelchair New York uh, and did the pageantry world for like that year and decided that in that year that I was also finishing off my biology degree and my other degrees at school, I realized that I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> I was just like, I don't want to do this. And it took me a year before I actually applied to nursing. Uh, but in nursing, I was a case manager, which kind of ties in a little bit with social work. So, but I will, mm -mm, not for me, case managers, I give it to you guys because not for, it's not for me. Nope. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely sound like you are someone who, even from a young age, has been really clear about what you want. And I'm wondering when you decided to go into nursing, what did that look like for you? Like, what did you envision as your role as a nurse? I wish I can tell you what I envisioned because I didn't even know that I would get into nursing school. It wasn't like I had seen a nurse in a wheelchair and then was inspired to go to nursing school. I wish that were the case, but that wasn't the case. Uh, just like um, millions of other Americans, I love Grey's Anatomy. And I think we used to watch ER all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Grey's Anatomy, those are like staples in like every medical professional's like list of shows that they've seen in their life. Uh, it was definitely something that was there for me. So it wasn't like I seen other people with disabilities in the healthcare field. I only know one medical professional who took care of me, particularly that had a visible and physical disability. So, and she was a doctor. So it wasn't like, these roles were just, oh my goodness, yes, you're accepted. It was more along the lines of, I didn't want to go into a room and say to someone, you're never going to do X, Y, and Z again. So anything that a doctor has ever told me I wasn't going to be able to do, I was like, yeah, I can't be a doctor because I wouldn't be able to tell anyone that they can't do something again. Um, I think about that now, even as I want to go on for NP, like I need to figure out how I'm going to be talking to patients because I am never going to tell someone that they can't do something. Like I am never going to tell someone that you can't eat 50 pieces of cake when you have a sugar level of like 600. <laughs> eat it? Please be my guest. Um, this is the wrong information to give someone, but at the same time, uh, I think just wanting to be a nurse came about knowing that the nurses that took care of me my entire life, all of my hospital stays, all 33 surgeries, they were the ones that listened when I was fighting doctors, telling them I didn't want to do something. They were the ones that were advocating for me or holding my hand when my mom couldn't be in the room. So it worked out in its own way that I can give back in a sense that they've given to me. And I felt like that was kind of where the calling came into play when I was already in nursing school. I love that. You know, we have been connected for a little while and I remember, you know, over a year ago when you were looking for your nursing job, you went on an exorbitant number of interviews. And so you know, after you had this achievement of, you know, passing your NCLEX, graduating from nursing school, you had this barrier in order to get someone to give you the chance to 
to prove that you are just as, if not more capable than anyone who was standing up being a nurse. So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about your experience with your 70 plus interviews. So in total, so all of my interviews, and I, I went over this number a couple of days ago because I wanted to make sure that I had the correct number. I've actually interviewed for over 150 positions, 76 of which were directly acute care related, meaning that they were in a clinic setting or within a hospital setting. Um, out of all of those interviews, though, I was always offered or given an offer for anything that included desk work, case management, non-hands-on, remote work. I, I was always able to land those jobs. So out of the 150, 76 of them, I couldn't get past. Everything else was definitely, okay, it was, it was for my choosing. Whatever you want, pick it, go for it. Uh, whether it was telephone triage, whether it was remote nursing, whether it was uh, case management, all the case management positions, whether it was insurance review, I was getting but I had already worked those positions and I understood what those positions came with. And I was just like, not for me. So the 76 rounds with the acute care going into a hospital setting, man, just thinking about it now gives me so much like anxiety because I'm going back into that interview world and I'm in that interview world again. And I already know what those biases are. They look at me, I'm coming into this room and they automatically have this preconceived notion that my wheelchair deems me less than right? I'm not going to be able to push the gurney, do CPR, hang an IV bag, turn a patient, lift a patient, like walk a patient to the bathroom. I think out of all those things that I just said, the only thing that I really don't like doing is ambulating a patient to the bathroom because let's be real, I am in the seated position. So safety is, that's probably the only one, but everything else I've proven and have been able to do. Uh, so that interview process was great because I got the interviews. <laughs> Resume arcs, much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely did everything that I needed to do in order to get those interviews. But getting past a certain point on those interviews, um, I won't call anyone out, but it's definitely a bias. And there are definitely preconceived stereotypes that I was not expecting to see within nursing. Nursing is supposed to be this empathetic, empathetic, sympathetic, um, forward progressing profession that stopped me at the door. And not only me, but others that have physical and visible disabilities. So I know that it wasn't just a one off situation. It wasn't just me not being able to to speak clearly or do what I needed to do during an interview. No, there, there are some clear system barriers there that have not been broken down yet. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, how was that brought up? Like, was it brought up in the interview or was it like an elephant in the room? Like when you were actually in the interview and you knew that there was bias against you, what did that really look like? So let's say my one through 10, the first 10 interviews, I didn't bring up my disability. I rolled into that room and I was just like, this is me. Look at me on paper. Try to give the best interview that I can possibly give. I had all the questions to ask afterward too. And, you know, cause I believe that it's an, it's an interview for both sides. I need to make sure that I would work there and they would work for me and so on and so forth. And then let's say from 10 to 20 was when I started to address my disability. Cause I was like, okay, well, something's not right. 10 interviews and I'm not getting anywhere. Something's wrong. 
So then I would say, can I walk the unit with you? Do you have an empty room that I can see if I can roll around in and make sure that I'd be able to grab things? What about your utility closet? Is it big enough for me to be in? Uh, and they would they would go through with it, and then I wouldn't hear anything back. Mm. And then it would, let's say, from like 30 to 60 was when I was asking a direct question, saying, what is it that you think might be a problem? Do you have any concerns with my chair on the floor? Do you have any questions um, that you would want to ask me directly about my disability in terms of what my role would be on your unit? And I wouldn't get too many questions there because, again, that's a liability question for them, right? If they're asking or answering that, that's a liability. So they try to negate it. But I would be clear that I would rather you ask me so that we have a clear understanding if this offer is coming my way, uh, what would be needed or what, you know, I can possibly do. I can remember clearly that uh, HR sat in one of my interviews and as I was bringing up my disability, they clearly stopped me. They was like, please do not talk about that because we want this to be a non-biased interview. And I was like, well, it's going to be biased by me not talking about it because you're going to try to hold me to the same standards of someone standing up. And that doesn't work the same way. So it would never really present itself in the way of, oh, you're in a wheelchair and this is this can't happen, even though some of it has come up. And I just decided to not like pursue any type of legal action because I realized that it's more about the educational factor versus just you're doing something wrong and I'm going to hold your hand to the fire about it. Uh, I need you to be educated and, and change the the system versus just hold your hand to the fire, like, which in some instances, I know that I'm wrong on, I should have held my hand, their hands to the fire. But I don't think that's going to create longevity change or like everlasting mm -hmm. change. Yeah. You know, you do a lot of advocacy work. And especially recently, you've had, you know, a lot of press opportunities, and you're really becoming this kind of face of change, especially in the nursing community, you know, being an advocate for people with disabilities. I'm wondering, like, do you get sick of talking about it? Or does it, like, bring you joy that you get to advocate for this and for yourself and for others like you? Or does it ever just seem like you wish you could talk about something else? Like, is it overdone? Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I definitely hear you. I think that it's overdone in the sense that why hasn't this changed yet? Like, why are these problems still insisting and I have to keep talking about it? Like, I'm over talking about this. Why haven't you, not you particularly, but why hasn't there been change created yet? Why hasn't there been a door opened for not only myself, but for others that are in the same situation? You know, we like to think that people with disabilities are in their own box when in actuality we're not. We're not looking at someone who may be pregnant who can't lift 50 pounds on the floor, right? We're not looking at someone who's had previous wrist injuries who can't do CPR, right? You're just seeing them come into the to an interview and automatically saying they're good to go, not knowing if they have high blood pressure, diabetes, if they're going to need to do certain things throughout the day to ensure their own health. But you see me roll into the room and you automatically close the door or you automatically have this preconceived notion that it's not going to happen. And not just me, this is happening to nurses who have audio impairments, who can't speak, who are missing limbs, who might have different injury levels than I have. So again, this is not a one-off situation. So I am sick of talking about it. But at the same time, at the other hand, I am glad that I'm getting the press and the media and having this voice on a platform to say, hey, guys, when are you going to open the door for everyone else 
And like I said, I hold the nursing profession to such a standard that is the forward progression of healthcare, right? Nurses are the ones that literally hold the power. I say this all the time. We hold the power and yet our power isn't doing anything good. It's not forward progressing at all. We even hold ourselves back in the profession. And that's the sad part. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I'm glad to have you as an advocate, like in the nursing profession. And, you know, I asked that question because I could see how it could be so exhausting and you just kind of feel like you're going in circles, trying to advocate for something that, you know, is so needed. Uh, And it must just at some point, you know, be emotionally exhausting, you know? Yeah, definitely emotionally draining. I've had my days. I've actually taken a back seat to interviewing uh, for the last six months because of the fact that I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Like it, it took its toll on me. Uh, and, and mentally, I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then all of a sudden, COVID happened. And then I'm I'm speaking about it again. And I'm like, here we are again. And then after all of COVID and yes, I'm getting all this press and I'm like, okay, let me start putting out my resume again. And now it's crickets. I was like, before I'd put out my resume on a Monday and have like 17 interviews by Friday. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, now I'm way too popular. They're Googling me. (laughs) Well, let's, let's back up a little bit because I feel like we need to kind of continue the story about what happened after all those interviews? Like what was the job that you ended up getting? And then I'd love for you to tell the story, which I know about how things changed in, you know, spring of 2020. So uh, the first job that I held was a camp health director for a special needs camp in New Jersey. Uh, It was actually a camp that I attended when I was a little kid. So it was great to go back and be able to, to to be around those campers. They were all ages and them see me as a nurse. And I swear to you, every single camper that I have seen were all like, you're my favorite nurse ever. You get it. You understand. You know. And I'm like, what do I know? And they're like, you just know. They're all mm-hmm. special needs. So they're either in chairs, spinal bifida, CP, feeding tubes, and I'm and I was like, well, that's just what I would want for me. So therefore I bring, I know the perspective that they're talking about. Like, I get it. I know what I want for me. So therefore you're getting it like as a nurse giving you care. Um, From that, I went on to be a case manager and case management for me broke my heart. And I say this because I would be on the phone with people who just had basic needs as a person with a disability And they would be denied left, right, and center, uh, even when they appealed certain things. And I'm like, this could be my life. This could be me if I were the one that had to be on a long-term managed care plan with a case manager and me begging my case manager for things that they're telling me I don't qualify for. And I'm like, how does this work? Why are these algorithms so out of place for people who have significant disabilities or just aging and they just need certain things to live like this doesn't make sense to me and I would I used to leave my job so drained and that's kind of where I was ramping up a lot of my interviews and ramping up a lot of my uh face-to-face time with nurse managers and recruiters uh and then I got the job as a school nurse 
And I love every minute of being a school nurse just because I always wanted to be a peds nurse. I was a peds patient, so I guess it just fell in line that I just wanted to be a pediatric nurse. And school nursing gave me that opportunity to have the hands-on aspect of nursing and dealing with, like, kids and thinking about school nurse. You're like, oh, we don't really do much. Listen, school nurses, we have a mini triage area that is not an ER. We are dealing with broken bones, people biting through their tongues, nosebleeds that don't stop. Um, Like kids who are like super sick, running fevers, calling parents, trying to talk to physicians, dispensing medications, dealing with asthma and epi and allergic reactions all day long. Like on top of doing paperwork. So if you want to tell me school nurses don't do a lot, we're like a small <laughs> ER in, in itself without any of the ER equipment going on. <laughs> and then school shut down in March and that was because of COVID. Yeah. And when school shut down and you, you know, were essentially out of a job, this is when you got your opportunity to work on the floors as a nurse right? Yes. So So, tell us more. New York City gets hit with COVID. And we all know that New York City was like 0.0 for the East Coast. It was like, here we go. And right before school shut down, I knew that something was going to happen. I like, I don't know if it was instinctual, but I started ramping up, sending my resume out everywhere. Uh, And then Governor Cuomo sent out a mass request for nurses to come out of retirement. And I was like, okay, nurses are coming out of retirement. You need all hands on deck. I'm going to apply wherever. Uh, And I replied back to that. And then right after I applied to that, a major hospital system had put out their HR number online and said, please call and we'll get back to you. So I called and within 15 minutes later, I had gotten a call back to come in and credential by Friday. Now, I went in, and I'm there talking to uh, New Nurse Academy on the phone the whole time, saying the ball is going to drop. They're going to see that I'm in a wheelchair. They're going to say that I can't do it. They're going to say that, you know, there's no way I'm going to be a nurse on the floor. They're going to tell me I'm an infection risk. All of these things that I've heard previously is running through my mind as I'm getting my ID badge for this hospital because I'm only meeting with HR. I'm not meeting with a nurse manager. I'm not meeting with a unit manager. Okay, so the next day I show up and I'm going through orientation and the educational leader is a nurse and she looks at me and she's like, do you need anything? Is there anything that you would need? And I was like, no. And in my mind, I'm like, this is way too easy. This is not not happening. Like, am I really getting a chance to get on the floor during COVID of all times? You're giving it to me during COVID. And yep, I get sent to the hospital and I start like that Monday night. And I'm on the floor and the nurses are looking at me like, you're not, are you, you're here for what? (laughs) Like, we can just make you give meds then, I guess. And I'm like, no, I can take on a full caseload. That's fine. What do you need me to do? Mind you, I've had 33 surgeries. I've been a a career patient my whole life. So of course I'm going to know every nook and cranny of a hospital and what things do and how things work. I probably can run a pump better than you can. (laughs) So please don't treat me like a new grad. Like, I got this. And they gave me the opportunity to actually prove myself. But in that own time, like my first day, even the director of nursing came up and was like, I don't think you can be on the floor. I don't think you can do this. And I just looked at her and I was like, did you talk to HR about this? 
And that's when her narrative kind of shifted a little bit. And she was like, oh, I don't mean to offend you. And I was like, but I think you did. I think you should talk to HR before you talk to me. Um, And that's just having Tiff in the back of my mind saying, you know, hold them to their equal opportunity statement. They already got you here, so they have to figure it out. And, you know, just trying to hold on to, to some words that would give me leverage in that situation versus letting them tell me what I can and can't do. Even though I've already been an advocate, I know that they can't tell me what I can and can't do, but nursing is just one of those things that scares me in the fact that they can tell me what I can and can't do and have held that over me for so long as it is. So I held it, held my ground that day and she didn't, she left me alone. And by the next day, uh, I was managing vents. My friends who are quadriplegics are on vents. They get suctioned. I know how to, to change their vent settings when it's needed. Some new grads don't know how to do that. <laughs> my life experiences that gave me the opportunity to really excel under the circumstances of COVID in a new situation. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really just sounds like your entire, it was like you had prepared your whole life for this moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know if it felt like that to you, but you know, hearing the story, that's what it, that's what it sounds like to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, possibly everything that I've encountered, whether it was vent settings, whether it was hanging my own IV bags, setting my own pumps, priming my own lines, understanding heparin and and Lovenox injections, understanding what signs and symptoms to look for in certain situations, even diabetic care, like, or ostomy care, like everything that I have done, I've already seen and handled not being a nurse. So now being a nurse and doing it was just like, it's almost second nature, but also trying to ensure that I was sticking to policy and protocol and making sure that everything I was doing was 100% correct because if I messed up, I'm losing my opportunity. And that's what I went to work thinking every day. So forget the stress of just COVID. I was just stressed that I would lose the opportunity to be on the floor. And I couldn't stand that fact. I was just like, I was too scared to lose that opportunity. So we have the five rights to check off for medication. I was probably doing that 16 times before I actually gave medication because I was like, I can't mess this up. I'm hoping that this was a confidence boost for you because it sounds like after facing rejection so many times, you would need that, you know, like, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this moment of you being able to kind of prove and do everything that up until that moment you were basically told you couldn't do. How did that feel for you? Were you grateful for that confidence boost if that's what it was? A hundred percent. I think that being given the opportunity and the opportunity not being taken away and me being able to show that I can do it was not only like proof to them, like to have an open mind and to say, well, you should give people with different abilities, different chances, but saying it to myself, I had wrote about this on my Instagram one day that, you know, I might not have been able to reach the top shelf in the supply closet, but I was able to turn the patient. I was able to put the bed in Trendelenburg and bring them up in the bed. I was able to suction the patient, do the vent settings, make sure they were clean, do the their everyday care. And most importantly, just be able to be a nurse at the bedside and feel like I belonged and, and feel like I was a part of that team and a team that maybe questioned me at first, but still gave me the opportunity to show that I could. 
and them actually calling on me in certain situations because they knew that I had the knowledge base to be able to do certain things. I'll tell you one night for sure, a patient was vented. They were on the portable vents because we were off of like the other vents and we didn't have any more. And for some reason we were paging, they were paging uh, respiratory to come because the alarm was just going off over and over again and they couldn't figure out what was it. And I was like, well, do you want me to check it? And they were like, go see what's wrong. And I went in and it was like high volume. And I'm like, okay, let's reset and see what happened. So we reset it, still high volume. I was like, okay, did we suction? Let's suction. Suctioned as much as we could, still getting high volume. They're calling RT, nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, this lady starts to just have decompensation. And I'm just like, "Mm, something's really wrong. So now I'm like disconnecting her tubes, fixing her trach. And they're like, wait, 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 Andrea, don't do it. I'm like, let me fix, maybe her trach is just not clear. So instead of like going through the trach, I take everything off and I'm in there like really suctioning. She had just too much mucus buildup. And I'm like, I need saline. I'm like telling her I need saline so I can get down there and like really suction her good. And they're like, everything, I put her back on the vent and everything is good and no more. And then RT respiratory is coming up and they're looking at me like, you did that? And I'm like, yeah. So like, <laughs> Did you guys hang the blood for my other patient? Thanks. Like, gotta go on. Like, move for the next, move to the next one. But in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, what if I don't have it? What if I don't know everything? What if I'm mm-hmm. making things worse and RT isn't here or respiratory isn't here? And these nurses don't know what. Like, they're not well versed in vents either. And I'm not about to lose this patient. It's not going to be on me. <laughs> like, all these things are going through my head, but then everything settles. And I did know what I was doing. And everything that I've learned in my own life experiences came to fruition here in this setting. And I'm like, I did that. This is me. Validation is like 100. <laughs> I love that. I feel like, you know, we talk a lot, especially when we're talking about new graduates, whether they're new grad nurses or NPs, you know, I like to talk a lot about confidence because, you know, the imposter syndrome is real. And I can just imagine how real that must have been for you as well, especially kind of in the situation where you knew that you could do it. And I wonder if things would have been different if you weren't as sure, because from what I've really, you know, learned about you is that you have this unwavering confidence, or at least you project this unwavering confidence. So, you know, if you, if you didn't know deep down that you could do it, like, what would the situation have looked like? Would you have even applied for that job? You know, like so much of this, I think is attributed to, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but attributed to the fact that you just have this baseline knowing and this baseline confidence that, you know, no one's going to tell you what you can't do and you know that you are fully capable. Oh, yeah, 100%. My parents are our first American immigrants, right? They they came up here when they were in their late 20s. And, you know, both of my parents have instilled in me from such a young age, like when I was first diagnosed with transverse myelitis, that I needed to figure out the world as if they weren't going to be there the next day. And this is from five years old. So if anyone has seen my story and hear my mom say I went from five to 50, yeah, because they made it so that I had to think about the fact that if they weren't there to help me, what was I going to do? And that in and of itself 
made me be as confident as I have to be in certain situations. So I'm not always 100% confident in a lot of things. I have my moments. There's always this moment of just questioning your own self. Uh, We all have it. Even the most confident person is going to second guess whether or not they're doing the right thing and then they take the leap. That's where I am in the world. It's like, I know I'm doing the right thing. I still question if I'm doing the right thing. And then I still take the leap knowing that if I did the wrong thing, I can deal with the consequence uh, and whatever the consequence would be. Do I want to do, does anybody want to deal with consequences? No, but I think that's the flip side of being a confident person is knowing that you're going to go forth with what you think is right, hoping and praying that it pays off. And if it doesn't, you're okay with the consequence. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your experience as a leader and as an advocate, because that's another big part of your story. And I, and maybe it started before you were Miss Wheelchair New York, but I think that was a big, you know, catalyst moment for you. So I'd love to hear about what that looks like for you now and what it really means to you to be a leader and an advocate. Yeah. So I wasn't so much an advocate for anyone else before Miss Wheelchair New York, just for me. I was okay with just telling doctors and people what I needed. What does Andrea need today? Make sure it happens. Thank you very much. Uh, And then in 2010, I had gotten really, like, deathly ill. I was in the hospital for over six months just trying to fight for my life. And I was in in a hospital system that is probably only good for trauma and should not be good for the things that I was there for. But... I was there and, you know, I realized in that space that I went through my deepest depression. I was like, I don't know what I want in my life anymore. And I was older. This is 2010. I was like, I don't know if I can be a person with a disability anymore. I don't know if I can live in a world that's not made for me. Uh, I don't, I'm tired of fighting for what I need. I was tired of fighting for my health. I was tired of fighting for just basic living necessities. And I had posted on my Facebook that I needed headphones because the nurse wrapped up my white Apple headphones in the sheets and threw them away. (laughs) They were gone. And this young woman sees my post and she's like, well, what hospital are you in? And she's like, oh, I live right nearby. And she brought me some headphones. And when she came to the hospital room, giving my headphones, she came back every single day that I was there. And she would tell me about all the things that people with disabilities are facing on the outside world. She herself had a disability. And everything that she was telling me were all the things that I was already telling other people that I needed for me. Like, this is what Andrea was fighting for, for Andrea. But you're telling me that people are fighting for this for themselves, too? Why why is this not collectively heard? Like, why is this not fought about on a bigger scale? And she was like, well, if you ever decide to, you can be Miss Wilshire, New York. (laughs) And I was like, well, what does that do? And she's like, well, that will give you a platform to voice all of your concerns. And you're pretty, so go do it. And I was just like, what does being pretty have to do with being Miss Wilshire, New York? Like, what is it about? And she was like, well, it's a competition that's like to promote advocacy. And I was like, well, I'm not an advocate. And she's like, well, that's why you'd be great at it, because you don't actually want to be an advocate. (laughs) Mm-hmm. like sure so this was mind you this was in 2010 and 
a lot of my story will always tell you that it takes me a long time to make a decision on what I'm going to do. So I was Miss Wilshire New York 2015, which means I applied in late 2014. <laughs> so, um, and that was told to me in 2010. uh yeah being a leader and an advocate came from this one young woman just telling me that whatever I was fighting for myself I can do on a bigger scale and get more attention and I was like huh okay I can do that and then Miss Wiltshire New York came into play and that kind of raised the platform I I won Miss Wiltshire New York I was Miss Wiltshire New York 2015 my platform was life liberty and the pursuit of access and I was going to run with that platform to make sure that I got what I needed to get through college. And it was more along the lines of what I needed to get through college, but taking what I needed to get through college and making so that everyone else who had the same issues could get through college too. Mm. And then that transformed into me working with organizations uh, and talking about how higher education is needed for people with disabilities, whether they acquire a disability later in life or whether they acquire it from birth. Uh, and how do we ensure that people can survive even if they don't have the educational foundation that they need? How do we get them to a point where they can be independent in their own homes? So it transformed over time, but since 2015 has definitely been where my leadership and advocacy skills came into play, like hardcore. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like we're seeing that in real time and that platform of yours just keeps on growing and you're reaching more and more people, which is so phenomenal. And I'm wondering, since it takes you a long time to make decisions and do things, like, do you have a vision for what your life looks like five, 10 years from now? I have no idea what I'm doing next week. (laughs) No, 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 I do, because I actually have a whiteboard that has a schedule on it. You know, my overall goal right now is to really work with uh, with myself because I'm still battling my own mental insecurities. Am I good enough? Um, yes, I'm a confident person. Yes, I understand what I bring to the table. But when you face the rejection that I face, knowing that I've been able to prove myself, that mentally takes a toll on someone. I don't know who's gone through it before where they've been successful and been successful in a profession and then being told that they can't do it Hmm. even though they've already done it. Who's gone through that? I would love to know. Somebody should DM me and let me know if they've gone through that because I have never heard of anyone being able to be successful in their profession and then still not be given a chance within that profession still looked at as unable or not like there's this bias or stereotype, even if it's not to me, but to the disability world as a whole, a world that we as nurses care for every day, right? Like this makes no sense to me. And that has been taking its toll on me mentally. So I've been like working out and trying to get those endorphins up all the time and just working on what my own mental agility looks like to go forward in the next couple of years, because I know that it's an uphill battle uh, and it's going to be a continuous uphill battle until there's some real systemic change that occurs within our profession, but just within healthcare too. Hmm. 
Well, this is a good segue. I love to include some kind of action steps for the nursing community who is listening. So if there are nurses in the audience listening who don't have a disability, how can they be better supporters and better advocates of those with disabilities, whether we're talking about our colleagues with disabilities in nursing or individuals in general with disabilities? Oh, yeah. Definitely uh, understand disability etiquette. I think that needs to be taught in nursing school or any healthcare professional school ever. Disability etiquette needs to be a thing because you can be dealing with well patients and you can be dealing with patients that are going to have acquired disabilities or disabilities that they've had their whole lives. And the terminology that I see written down in charts that is spoken to patients on a regular basis is flabbergasting to me. I am like appalled by what I see and I read knowing that they have never probably dealt with a patient who had a wheelchair or amputation or uh, a prosthetic or anything different. So disability uh, etiquette, look it up. (laughs) I promise you it is, you can Google search it. It comes from United Spinal Disability etiquette, you just understand how you're going to approach people with different disabilities, whether they are blind, deaf, physical, mobility, it doesn't matter. Like, just look it up, understand what your terms actually mean. Wheelchair bound, we do, I should not see wheelchair bound in people's charts. I, I, that, I think that's the worst thing I can read when I open up Epic and I see wheelchair bound and I'm like, they're wheelchair bound where how are they attached to the chair do they shower in their chair do they 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 sleep in their chair in the bed like i how does this make sense does the word bound even make sense like to like you're not bounding them to their wheelchair that's like that's such a good example though of of something that is so commonly used that many people probably don't know is inappropriate or offensive so what would you prefer to see instead. Let's like give a really actionable tip here. Don't write wheelchair bound in your chart. What should you write instead? Write wheelchair user, right? It's just that simple. What I love to say and what nurses love the most is the fact that we actually are the progressive movements. Once healthcare establishes the fact that someone with a disability can still live a very active life, then everything else will fall in place. If you realize that healthcare terminology actually places someone in the box, in their home, eating bonbons, not moving, okay? It's a very sedentary life, and that is not the case for most people with disabilities. So the way our terminology is used in the real world is actually to hurt us into reason why we can't get the accessibility that we need outside of healthcare. And even within healthcare, if you have your own offices and your own practices, do you have a wheelchair accessible bathroom? Do you have tables that go up and down that can accommodate for someone to get on and off of that exam table? How are you examining your patients? Are you automatically assuming that they're not sexually active because they're in a wheelchair? I can tell you firsthand how many people I know with disabilities who have gotten STIs and STDs because of the fact they were not checked appropriately, Mm -hmm. but they can be sexually active, right? Like we are not discussing the fact that people with disabilities live very fulfilling and active lives and we don't include them in how they're living their lives when we're checking on them and how we're dealing with them in a hospital setting or a clinic setting. So actionable, yeah, make sure that your terminology is correct. Take the disability etiquette uh, book and read through it and make sure that, you know, you're actually addressing the human being before you're addressing their disability. 
it's just it's just that simple <laughs> you know like the way, the way you say it is just it's just it's just that simple right and i and i love that you are bringing this up and and really calling out something that needs to be changed uh, and i know that this is you know part of the basis of your platform and getting this information to as many nursing professionals as possible i agree with you is something that can really be forward moving when it comes to creating long-lasting systemic change because that's what is needed. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, nurses, we hold we hold the power. It's not doctors. It's not OT or PT. It's not respiratory. It's the nurses. It's the nurses that are going out to the homes. It's the community nurses. It's the nurses in the hospitals that are seeing these patients. It's all of us collectively that get to make this a forward-moving progression. I love that. I think that's a great spot to wrap things up. I just, I just love how you've summarized that. Where can people connect with you and follow you online if they would like to? So you can follow me on Instagram at the seated nurse, uh, spelled out no numbers or anything, no, uh, underscores, just the seated nurse, or you can type in the same, the seated nurse on Facebook, or you can type in my name, Andrea Dalzell, uh, into Google, and it will give you a lot of my, uh, social media platforms. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrea. I will link to all those places in the show notes so anyone listening can click right through. I'll also make sure that there's some resources in there for disability etiquette and terminology so that people can expand their knowledge in that area. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. It's such a treat to talk to you. Yes, finally. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that does it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and making it all the way to the end. If you found today's episode helpful, would you take a minute and give me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts? It will truly help other nurses find this show and know that it's worth listening to. For more information about this episode, as well as a place to submit your questions or suggestions for future episodes or guests, head to nursebecoming.com. I cannot wait to connect with you again soon. And until next time, remember, I am always rooting for you.